Then outspake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate, to every man upon this earth, death cometh sooner or late. And how can a man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? Lord Macaulay, you are listening to the Artiburn Radio Transmission. On his deathbed, Alexander the Great summoned his generals and told them he had three ultimate wishes. Number one, the best doctor should carry his coffin. Number two, the wealth he had accumulated, money, gold, precious metals, stones, should be scattered along the procession to the cemetery. Number three, that his hands should be let loose, hanging outside the coffin for all to see. One of his generals, who was surprised by these unusual requests, asked Alexander to explain, and here's what he said. I want the best doctors to carry my coffin to demonstrate that in the face of death, even the best doctors in the world have no power to heal. I want the road to be covered with my treasure so that everyone sees the material wealth that I acquired on earth stays on earth. I want my hands to swing in the wind so that people understand that we come into this world empty-handed and we leave empty-handed. And the most precious treasure of all that is exhausted is time. Welcome to the Arterburn Radio Transmission. I am your host, Tony Arterburn. I'm broadcasting from beautiful, well, it's cloudy sky, Branson, Missouri, here in the Ozark Mountains with my co-pilot and co-host, Beans the Brave. And as always, we're um, broadcasting, especially in defiance of the globalist goblins, the neocons, the New World Order, the Build Back Better, Biden, Beelzebub, Baphomet, Bilderberg, Bohemian Grove, Bankster Bunch. I'm going to make that a shirt soon. I think. I've got a design in mind. I've got, I want to make that a shirt soon, so stand by. I've got like three shirts we're going to put out for Paratruth. I'm wearing my Maxfield Athletics uh, shirt, too, and that's uh, that's the gym I own in Hollister, Missouri, named after my, well, really my brother. He was my best friend and uh, former Marine, passed away almost 20 years ago, and uh, he's got a gym named after him here in Missouri. But uh, we're going to jump into some headlines Good to see all of you. You guys are my support group when I'm <laughs> streaming across the world on Worldwide Christian Radio on shortwave. And then I've got uh, 9.30 a.m. The Answer San Antonio, which is my home station there at Salem Media. Uh, good to uh, be talking to all of you. It means a lot that you tune in. Let's go to Drudge. Let's see what Operation Mockingbird wants me to talk about. <laughs> they usually have some interesting stuff in the left-hand corner. And so this is parapolitics and precious metals. You guys know the drill. It's it's art. It's ART. It's an art, not a science. And so we 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 delve into politics a little bit. Um, basically for the reason Sun Tzu laid out to know your enemy. It's got poll. Biden easily wins over Trump in a hell rematch, 47 to 40. Well, what does that even mean? Um, like it's it's so you know how an eternity is in politics, folks? Like an eternity is a year in politics. You realize what can change? I remember reading Politico 
going into the 2016 election. I used to subscribe to Politico. I thought, well, they're they're lefty and they're kind of globalist, but uh, they got some good intel. And some of their opinion pieces were just absolute garbage. I have one I, I distinctly remember. I should have framed it. And it was, no matter what you do, it's going to be Jeb versus uh, Hillary. And I thought, you really don't know that. Um, <laughs> this is back, you know, when the primaries were heating up. All the talk about who's going to be the Republican nominee. And I thought, I don't think you understand the, the undercurrents and how unhappy people are. I don't think you truly get it. You know, Tucker Carlson made a great point in his book, Ship of Fools. He said, uh, a happy nation doesn't elect Donald Trump. And I could tell the nation was just ready. I'd been in, a candidate and, you know, and for the Congress. And so I understood kind of a broad spectrum of what was happening nationally. And I thought these guys are out of touch and they're still out of touch. They're supposed to be out of touch. The mainstream media, that's its job is to be completely out of touch. Uh, the headlines go further. Difficult path for a third party. 16% would consider mansion. Folks, it's an eternity left. I mean, they, there's still so many things that can happen. There might be five different uh, parties running. Who knows? This is going to be crazy. It's like you looked at what happened in 1992 with Ross Perot and the Reform Party. And that's a, we should do a paratrither on that. That was a weird one. That was when I really first came online and started paying attention to politics. And it was my first article that I ever wrote. Well, as a paper, I wrote it for, for school. I was 12 years old and I wrote it about the 1992 election about uh, Ross Perot. And I remember my stepmother got mad at my dad. She said, why did you write that paper for him? And she, he's like, I didn't, he wrote it. I was interested in it. Uh, some, some Republicans now think Donald is boring. Okay. Um, well, I don't know what, I don't know if boring's the word, uh, Pence scrambles to make first debate. DeSantis urges probe of, of Bud Light. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Ron. And then Ron's campaign is hemorrhaging support. So, um, not much wisdom to glean from, from Drudge stuff. You probably already know instinctually, and we're way too far out. I don't, I don't think people truly understand uh, politics in our time because they don't understand demographics. I know I hit on that a lot, but you know, it's, it's almost like you give up political science. Like why, why even, so if you're in California, why even study political science? You just have to put a D next to something and it wins. You know, that's not true for, for what I, I, I despise red blue state. Cause that was a psyop and they put red on the conservatives because communism is red. I get it. But if you, if you, I don't like the red state, but if you go to the deepest, what is Alabama? And you had, and I forget the guy's name, but he ran, he was running for, for Senate. He got beat by a Democrat because they went after his character and he, you know, uh, signed some yearbooks for, you know, you know whatever uh, girls in high school when he was in the army. I don't know. It's some, some weird deal. And I don't know the full story, but that's a, an example of a, a red state will vote in a Democrat, but you can't get a conservative voted in, in what you consider a blue state. And that's the power of demographics, ladies and gentlemen, that is the power that they have in those numbers. When you have a, a block of people from certain backgrounds, income, uh, socioeconomic status, they vote a certain way and they always will, or at least in the foreseeable future. I mean, not in eternity, but that's pretty much <laughs> you know, in our lifetime. That's what demographics are. So I become less and less interested unless it's on the local level, unless it's a grassroots movement. And I think there's some 
there's some important things that are coming out uh, in this election. I, I'm glad to see uh, somebody like RFK Jr. By the way, I had a comment on on the Rockfin feed on the America Unplugged uh, channel uh, from last week, and it was somebody who who tuned in and they said, "Well, I liked your show until you said that it was unfortunate that uh, RFK Jr. was a Democrat." Like. I was writing him off because I couldn't vote for a Democrat if I was going to vote. And I, I don't know if anybody read the comment, but I said, uh, actually, I was just saying it was unfortunate for him because it was, uh, it was his it being in that primary. It was, it was unfortunate because he's going to get everything's rigged against him. I have no, I don't care that he's a Democrat. As a matter of fact, um, that's what I am. I mean, I'm, I'm a Sam Houston, Ralph Hall Democrat. You know, I, I'm a, I like JFK. I mean, I would have agreed with a great deal of his, his policy. So, um, you know, I like Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was basically the father of the Democratic Party in many ways. Uh, they don't celebrate him much anymore, obviously. Or Andrew Jackson. You know, Andrew Jackson was a, a proud Democrat. He was the seventh president of the United States. He's the first president to be openly elected by the people. Uh, that was the first, you know, uh, popular uh, vote. Um, and if you know anything about me, I'm, <laughs> I've drifted away from that. I, I think we should just kind of go back to the way it was for the first six presidents. I mean, what was wrong with John Quincy Adams? You know, I mean, I like Andrew Jackson, but I think we, the more, you know, more voting equals less freedom has, you know, changed my mind. I think somebody, somebody made a meme of me a couple of years ago about that because I made a joke about uh, democracy, but there's something, there's, that's a conversation we need to have about what democracy is versus a republic and what. Uh, checks and balances, rule of law. You guys know what I. You guys know how uh, what I care about. I care about Lex Rex. Law is king, uh, and of course the mob will give you some very demonic things. You know the. If you look at history, the the mob they voted to crucify Christ. You know Pontius Pilate washed his hands. He asked uh, Jesus. He said, "What is truth?" That's such a, that's such an elite thing to ask. What is truth? Can we transcend truth? No, there's just truth. And uh, anyway, he put he put it to a vote, to the people, and they said yes. Let his blood be on us and our children. That was a that was a democracy in action. Oh, democracy killed Socrates too. It was the vote. You know, they had a, the popular vote. They got rid of Socrates, and of course. Uh, you know, uh, Adolf Hitler, he got elected. He wasn't just, he didn't, he didn't seize power with the beer hall putsch in the twenties. He was elected, you know, rode to power on a wave of ballots. So let's not forget about that. Democracy is not a God that you should worship. It's a, it's a good tool and I like voting. Uh, but I think when you start talking about, well, look at the 17th amendment's a great example. 1913, not only we get the federal reserve, the demonic Luciferian bankster note factory. Uh, but we get the income tax and you get the 17th amendment, which is the direct election of senators. Most people do not know that this country was set up where the state legislature would choose its two senators. And the state legislature had that power and they could recall them. As a matter of fact, um, JFK put in his book, uh, Profiles of Courage. He listed some senators with courage. One of them was Sam Houston, uh, which is one of my, Heroes. I named my son after him. As well, I got, I've got a tattoo of Sam Houston's autograph on my my arm and my left arm. I love Sam. Is reading his history, but he was censured. He was told to come home by the state legislature. He he was the first president of Texas. 
he had you know won the Texas independence for its own country, and he was recalled by the state legislature because he was a union guy. He was with Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson did not want to see the country break up, and there was already starting that undercurrent of secessionist movements was going on in the South at the time. And uh, yeah, that was really a really an unfortunate thing. But Sam Houston stood strong. He was. Uh, we'll, we'll have to talk about Sam sometime. That we get so caught up in these headlines, it's bad for you. And that's why you guys are my support group. I, I have to I have to talk to you about what's it, the insanity happening. Uh, we're going to get into a little bit. There's an article up on summit.news about UFOs, which yeah, I have my own opinions on, um, which are probably not what you think. Uh, but I've got some opinions on uh, the UFO phenomenon, the UAPs. I don't know why. They have to relabel everything. It's exhausting. We already have... A uh, hundred plus years of well-researched UFO documentation, real journalism, going back to when everybody said they were crazy and kooks and cranks and you know uh, tinfoil hatters, and we're about to see a shift like you've never seen before. This is part of it, right? This is part of the Great Reset. The Great Reset is not over. Like it was the opening round. COVID nineteen eighty four was the opening round, in my opinion. I don't know. I don't get the I see, I follow their, their white papers and I see what they're put out. I, I see what they're floating. So you can kind of, well, you can also follow Bill Gates and see what <laughs> you can kind of get it, see what's happening six months or a year from now by what he's investing in and who he's meeting with, but they're not done with that. They're not, I mean, this is 2030, this decade, it's a lead up to uh, what they hope to be a one world totalitarian, uh, totalitarian socialist government, as Bill Cooper would say. Um, will they get it? That's an open question. And I think that they're desperate. I think that we'll talk about some of the things that they're pushing with, uh, not only universal basic income, but central bank digital currency today as well. And if you look at the economic climate leading into, we got about a month, we actually one month from tomorrow, the BRICS nations are going to be meeting in South Africa. It's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And this is massive. It doesn't mean that their currency is going to work. That, According to Jim Rickards and others, they are going to announce, the BRICS nations are going to announce a currency tied and backed by gold. Now, there's a whole host of things that could happen with that. These countries have been net buyers of gold. They're 40% of the world's population. They've been net buyers since 2009. And central banks broke the record last year since the 1950s of central banks around the world ordering gold. There's only one nation that didn't add to its gold holdings and hasn't added to its gold holdings since the 1950s. That's the United States of America. Because the United States of America has a vested interest in gold not going up. The dollar is at war with value. It used to be the petrodollar. It kind of still is. But we're losing that. Biden doing in the controlled demolition of the world's reserve currency status of the dollar, controlled demolition of our society too. I mean, controlled demolition of our economy, uh, our government. Uh, this is by design because you can't really explain it away by just stupid decisions. The first thing he does is cancel the the Keystone XL pipeline, and then he stops being a you know a buyer. He's not buying uh, from the Saudis. He's not doing that. Uh, we showed them that we abandon. All of our commitments in Afghanistan at once, we did, we had a, I mean, just the most cowardice, uh, unthoughtful 
departure from Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia took notice, signed a deal with Russia. Now China is the net buyer, the largest buyer. So who are you, go- who are you going to cater to when the U.S. pulls back? U.S. is no longer looking like they're going to protect you. So all of that, that petrodollar dollar status that was set up by Nixon and Kissinger after the dollar went off the gold standard, that's coming to an end. So you've got the dollar that's hanging kind of, there's really no alternative for it right now, but again, shrinking in demand all over the world. Central banks are letting go of their dollar holdings, getting into gold, getting into the Chinese yuan, looking at other systems because we have 40 different sanctions, right? On 36 different countries. These countries are tired of it. We've weaponized the dollar. And we've also made our economy weak. We've made ourselves uh, dependent on foreign nations. We've become uh, the, the colonies again. We have to import everything. You know, that's one of the biggest lies. And I fought against this when I, well, the last one, any, anytime I've been in public life, I've spoken out against uh, what I call the free traders, right? And you think I'm talking about trade as in T-R-A-D-E-R-S, but it's not. No, I'm traitors. Free traders. I mean, the, the the siphoning off, the pawning of America's soul with these free trade agreements, you know, NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, Ross Perot said it was going to be a giant sucking sound. Yeah, yeah, that's what it did. It just sucked the wealth and technology out of our country. It's the same thing with the WTO or GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. I've been studying this a long time. And it's something interesting about our founding that we don't do anymore. Like we had sound money at the founding of the United States of America. We had a dollar as good as gold. We had a bimetallic standard. In the 19th century, so, you know, the country's founded in the 18th century. At the end of the 18th century, we have a government, we have a constitution. We start coining money, which is what Congress is legally, constitutionally authorized to do. And they can only coin gold and silver, right? (laughs) But we didn't have inflation. There was no inflation. Whatever cost in George Washington's inaugural for a pair of shoes cost the same in 1902, right? Those systems were set up by geniuses who understood that governments manipulate you through currency. They were geniuses. And uh, again, they also knew something about trade. The second act out of Congress in 1789, the very second act, the second bill was the agreement on tariffs. It was a bill to establish tariffs for the United States. Now, what is a tariff? That's an import tax. And what Alexander Hamilton had figured out not a huge fan of Hamilton. He's the he's the banker's guy. He's on the $10 bill. Um, but he was right about that. And he built up America's, what was a fledgling manufacturing base. And we became, over time, by protecting our markets. And you can go overboard with that. You can have too high a tariffs. But if it, if it can be made here, it should be made here. And I think we've seen that. So we've become so dependent. And we, again, the last, all these things go together. If the... 1971, August 15th, Nixon takes us off the gold standard. So the dollar starts to float. It's just free floating. The price of gold goes up, which if you know, if you don't understand, it didn't really go up. It's just the dollar is losing purchasing power. But the dollar goes, you know, it's, it starts losing purchasing power. Gold goes up. Well, we start, you know, looking at uh, tr- our first time ever in modern history, we start running trade deficits. And by the time Nixon leaves the White House in 1974, it's the last time we ever ran a trade surplus. Never ran, never ran a trade surplus again. So where does that money go? I remember they laughed at me. 
I had people laughing when I would talk about the numbers, the numbers, <laughs> like Anthony Fauci. If we look at the, the trade deficit numbers, uh, back in 2013, 2012, 2013, when I was getting into politics, I said, you're going to reach a time very soon where we're going to hit a trillion dollars annually on trade deficits. And that sounded outrageous because it was basically going to double. Well, I was right. <laughs> so where does the money go? Well, it's a great wealth transfer. You just don't really see it. You can see it in the, the Rust Belt, right? Why is it rusty? Well, because all those factories got closed down. Why did they get closed down? Because there's no incentive for them to stay. We gave them an out. We said, oh, you can just leave and go cross the border where there's less regulation and less taxes and cheap labor and put Americans who are hard workers into a Darwinian contest for survival. And then we'll just shut down these factories because it's cheaper for us to shut these down and move them overseas and import the stuff and we'll sell them to the consumers. And that's why you have, you know, Appalachia and all these places. Just there's a there's a feeling of what what you would refer to as ennui, right? It's like this. Uh, Jimmy Carter called it malaise, and you start to see this the the soul of America starts to to dwindle because we're not we're not great. We're not making things. You look at Detroit. It's not just Democrat control that did that. That's a policy of the U.S. government. Both parties agree on, on what I've just said. Both parties agreed that we should have a fiat currency tied to nothing. Both parties agreed across the board, with some exceptions and you know, sprinkling of opposition between Democrat and Republican, that we should have free trade. In the face of it not working, right? Because it's clearly not working. I mean, if you have you know, a net loss of jobs, and, and if you look at the charts, I got books on my shelf behind me from the 90s just showing this, like the graph of uh, the profits from multinational corporations going through the roof and then people's wages going sideways and down. It's because you're losing purchasing power, your dollar is losing value, and your job pays less. You know, there's a reason we go back to, the, to a time when America had a dollar as good as gold and we, we had some semblance of economic nationalism. We had jobs for people. You could have one job. You could have a stay-at-home mom. You know, you could build a household and, and raise several children or more and get away with it. Those jobs are gone. That's long gone. And that's by design. It's a policy of the U.S. government. So <laughs> I get caught up in these uh, these little rants, you know, but you you – you look at what's happening to the country and it's not going to get better anytime soon. It has to get worse before it gets better. And, and I think if you understand the origin of it, then you can start making better policy decisions and you can support people that are making better policy decisions. We don't have a lot of on the option to do that right now, but at least we know, um, <laughs> at least we know who done it. Right. All right. Well, let's jump into, let's talk about some of those, the economic consequences of buffoons, and uh, lizard people, <laughs> whatever, whoever was on the plane with that lady, I think, I think whoever was on the plane with that lady that she said wasn't real, that's who left the cocaine in the White House. If I can get, I, I just have a gut feeling. I can't prove it. This was an interesting article I found on Zero Hedge. Let's go through a little bit of this. Lessons from the Great Depression uh, by Charles U. Smith of the Two Minds blog. And 
I won't read the whole thing, but it's it's really referring to markets. But it's a a breakdown of a book. A long term, long time correspondent uh, Ishibaka recently shared his takeaways from a classic on the ground account of the Great Depression in the U.S. It's called The Great Depression: A Diary. Another reader reminded me the Great Depression was global and occurred earlier than 1929 in other nations and had calamitous consequences elsewhere. That said, humans are running wetware 1.0 everywhere, so it's likely that many of these lessons are applicable to the collapse of speculative asset bubbles in other countries. Well, we're all tied. This is a global economy with global consequences. And says, here's some. Uh, of the takeaways from the book. And it says, uh, number one, diversity. The USA, this is referring to the Great Depression. In the USA, people who held stocks and real estate were wiped out, while people who held, held treasury bonds did great. In Germany, people who held government bonds, bonds were wiped out, while people who held real estate did great, especially if they had a mortgage. He relates the story to one of the American clients who owned a piece of property in Germany worth a $5,000 mortgage, which he was able to pay off with $18 when, uh, when it hit hyperinflation hit. That's, that's something, there is a silver lining to inflation. Because if you've locked in a debt, let's say you have a mortgage or a car payment or just an outstanding third-party debt, when you lock in a debt, and the money supply increases because of either printing by the central bank, right, or a catastrophic rise in prices, All anything that can happen with inflation, you the, the money supply flows back to you. You have more of those units, and you can pay off. your. It's easier to pay off your debt. Number two, have some cash. The biggest problem in general was a lack of actual money. Nobody had any for anything. Over and over, Roth laments having no cash to buy stock or real estate bargains in 32 and 33. That's true. If you're right now, I would I would caution people to be very uh, leery about jumping in in any kind of market or anything other than your savings, which is to me precious metals. I like gold, silver, Bitcoin. I like in pretty much that order. And I like precious metals because there's no counterparty risk, right? You can hold it in your hand. It's real wealth. Gold and silver are money. And uh, that's also liquid, right? So what this, what he's talking about and having some cash, to me, gold and silver is cash. If you know you got a trusted dealer like you could deal with me or somebody that is in your hometown or whatever, if you know that you can always cash out your gold and silver for spot and get into the currency of whatever, the, the currency du jour or wherever you are, that is cash to me. Number three, people never learn. In 1936, the depression seems to be over and the stock market is booming. The same people who were wiped out in the crash of 29 are investing like crazy again. The U.S. stock market crashed 50% the next year in 1937. That's exactly right. It wasn't over. Mainly because the New Deal policies uh, and we'd, we'd inflated the money supply. You know, uh, FDR said it was illegal for you to own gold in April of 1933. He signed an executive order, said you'd turn your gold in. 
gold was $20 an ounce. We had $20 gold pieces, if you recall. I still have some here at the shop. I buy $20 gold pieces all the time. They're worth over $2,000 now. Those $20 gold pieces, right, were taken by the FDR's administration, by the Roosevelt administration. And guess where that gold went? I know where it went, right? It it didn't just go to the government. They just they didn't just stack it somewhere. No, it was transferred to the Federal Reserve and then transferred to the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, which is what it was intended to do. And then the Federal Reserve, uh, the Bankster Bunch, they give you some pieces of paper and said, here's for your gold, right? The 20 bucks. But what did FDR do? He raised the uh, price of gold to $35 an ounce. And he just did that off the top of his head, right? Or was it Harry Hopkins who lived in the White House who was a Rothschild agent? Was that who helped him make those decisions? Kind of like Colonel Mandel House who was with who lived in the uh, Wilson White House helped him? They've always put a banker's agent in there. I wonder why. It's weird, Tony. Isn't it weird? <laughs> uh, these why that's so weird. That's uh, such a such a coincidence. Number four, uh, timing the market is one of the best ways to go broke. Despite, despite being a student of markets and intelligent, Roth again and again is wrong in the U.S. market and U.S. economy predictions. Well, that's in, this is a takeaway from a book that was written after the, uh, uh, the Great Depression. Number five, professions fared badly. There were weeks where he made no money as a lawyer. People stopped seeing the dentist for anything but abscess teeth that needed pulling. They couldn't pay the doctor. He relates that one week a doctor friend of his made a grand total of $1. Since my paternal grandfather was a livestock veterinarian during the Depression, he told me a grim fact. He was better off as a vet than an MD. If the child got sick and died, the parents couldn't afford a doctor's visit. It was sad. The family survived. If their cow got sick and died, the whole family might starve. So he got paid. You t this was hard living. You know, it had an effect on generations. The Great Depression, by the way, engineered, to completely engineered. Ben Bernanke, if you go back, and this is absolute fact, you can fact check me if you want. Uh, he said that the Federal Reserve was responsible and that they wouldn't do it again. They actually, we did cause the Great Depression. Yes, they did. They were they increased the money supply. They had control of it, and people were able to to borrow uh, to buy stocks. You know, on a margin call. That's insane, right? But they did that. They put it on a margin call, and who's benefiting from that? I and mean, you can inflate the bubble, and then when you know it's coming, you parachute out. The bubble burst, and then you've got a bargain on everything, and. This affected people. I'll give you a tidbit, just a little nugget of knowledge from that that most people don't talk about from the Great Depression. Did you know, and this is my favorite generation of people, the kids born during the Great Depression, you, you're thinking of the greatest generation, which was what uh, Tom Brokaw called them, the, peop the, the people that fought in World War II, and they were a great generation. But there's a generation after them that grew up during the Depression. They were too young to fight in World War II. That's, this is your Korean War. These are my favorite people. This is my, my grandfathers, 
my grandmother's, right? Born in the 30s. Did you know that that's the only generation in American history that never had a president? Every generation previous would have a president, but they never they never had one. Now, if Pat Buchanan would have won in 1996 or 92 or 2000, uh, he would have been of that generation. He was born in 1938. But isn't that interesting, right? That It had such an effect, and there was a reason they were called the silent generation. They fought in the Forgotten War. Isn't that weird? That Korea. Most people don't remember that we had it. We're still at war in Korea. We have a demilitarized zone. There was a there was a soldier who just fled to North Korea. Things must be bad at home. He he had to get into North Korea as, as fast as he could. That was uh, uh I don't know I don't know how long he's gonna it, that's gonna last. Uh, the novelty will wear off real quick. Uh, number six uh, herd mentality is a thing. Says the runs on banks really made the lack of cash situation worse. A lot of, of it was driven by irrational fear. Banks that would have survived if their clients had remained calm went under, wiping the banks and the clients out. Well, there's a lesson in that, too. And then you go back to the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which is kind of, a, and David Knight's done a great breakdown of how it's like really an allegory of, of what the Federal Reserve's all about, you know, with Mr. Potter and the banker and trying to get, you know, these small banks to fail. So you go and buy the banks up. And of course, when you buy the banks, you also buy their assets. Uh, bankers and these, not all bankers, right? But they're talking about the top uh, 1% that have the eyes wide shut parties and stuff. <laughs> these, these people gobble up, you know, they like it when there's blood in the streets. It's kind of like uh, Mitt Romney of, you know, was it Bain Capital? And uh, he's a vulture capitalist, not a venture capitalist, a vulture capitalist to just pounce on things that are just about dead and kill them off or break them up. Never really made anything, just kind of move stuff around. <laughs> just the worst. But that's what that's all about, right? The bankers love to break things up. And uh, when there's blood in the streets, that's when you buy. I think that's a famous Rothschild's quote. You know, that's when it's time to buy when there's blood in the streets. Number seven. The preppers have a point. He relates to the local violent crime, including murders, reached unprecedented levels during that time. Well, the reason I brought this article up, too, I saw the headline. I thought, well, we can talk a little bit about this is financial lessons, but more than that, like the consequences of an economy that's in free fall. And. We are on we are on the precipice of a massive uh, shift, historic shift, like we've never seen before when it comes to currency and value and economics, socially, and so much of it's by design. And there's unknowns in this. I mean, I can't keep up with it. I, I read all these articles all day long. I'm looking at headlines all day long. I, you know, I I have paid services I look into for Intel. I want to know what's going to happen next. And even me, I'm confused as to the outcomes i think you have several players right now vying to be in control of the nwo when when the dust settles and then you also have the the factor that uh, people human beings are are not wanting to do that i mean 
go, I mean, anybody who's a, some semi awake, you ask them, Hey, do you want to be part of a one world totalitarian socialist government? Nobody wants that. Nobody, people like decentralization. They like, I mean, look at the, the phenomenon of cryptocurrency. There's a reason why people like it. People like the idea of having peer to peer. Uh, they have their own currency, their own thing. They could back it to whatever company or, or, program or security or anonymity, whatever it is. And people like that. And I think that is a good thing. That's called decentralization, ladies and gentlemen. But what you have is you have this set, this class of people that in nation states too, that are trying to create a centralized system. And of course, using crypto as like a gateway, which is what we have to be careful of. You know, it's like, oh, we can't use that anymore. Like China banning Bitcoin. Bitcoin's still going strong, you know, still over 30,000 last time I checked. Uh, I still got a story to tell. Uh, and I like other, there's some other coins that I like too. But just the technology alone, people are decentralizing. We see that from the Protestant Reformation, decentralizing. American Revolution, decentralizing. This is, I, I, don't, I don't see any evidence that people around the world want to link up to one thing. And there's also the phenomenon of ethno-nationalism. That happened in our lifetime. We saw the breakup of the Soviet Union into 16 pieces, decentralization. People uh, amassing in, into uh, areas where they have the same language, the same culture, the same history, same heroes, right? Another term's called blood and soil. This, this is humans around the world breaking away. The Catalonians in Spain, the Hong Kongers decentralization. People want to decentralize smaller nations. I like it. You know, the, there's a, the Brexit movement that had to be put down because you had to get that buffoon, that disheveled moron. You had to roll out Boris Johnson. They always get a, they always get a clown, right? When the, the, the clown world will always send you a clown. We did here in this nation too. We always get a clown, but that's what they rolled out. They're, they are afraid of it. They're afraid of decentralization. Texas, I didn't used to be for that. I'm for it now. Uh, I used to, I get asked on the campaign trail, like, well, you know, do you support uh, the Texas nationalist movement? And I, my reply was, well, you know, I'm a veteran. I served in the army. I had people that from all backgrounds and race and face and everything. I, I loved my, my brothers from, you know, uh, Massachusetts and New York and Ohio. And I thought, I don't want to, I don't, I think we should have one country. What's wrong with that? Well, the, the problem is we're seeing the consequences of having centralization and a coast to coast California. They want to trap you in that system where you have no say. Do you have a say in California? I mean, really? And the answer is no, because the demographics kind of going back to my earlier point. So I look at the only way freedom exists is decentralization and having, I mean, even if you don't have a Texas movement where you have a, a Texas nationalist movement, you still have the ninth and 10th amendment. That's why I don't believe in a con con. I don't think we need a constitutional convention because we don't use the constitution we have now, which would work if it was enforced. All right, let me go to the, let's see who's in the Rockfin chat. 
thanks everybody for for showing up by the way you guys know you're my support group right <laughs> to talk to my radio listeners my listeners on rockfin and i'm streaming over uh, a couple of different technocratic control platforms while while it lasts i know i'm i'm on twitter and i'm on facebook but uh, chris graves patrick s looks like billy's in the chat too america unplugged i know who that is we're accepting calls from time travelers only. One of the greatest intros of all time is Billy Ray Valentine's uh, Infinite Fringe podcast with uh, Art Bell asking for time travelers to call in. And if you uh, if you listen to it, which I hope you'll go subscribe, you'll hear you'll hear him asking for callers and then saying hello, hello, which is a, one of the <laughs> one of the best ideas to to couple that. I just think I always love that intro. Love listening to it. See uh, Tom Cooper's here and uh, any word and thanks everybody. It's means a lot. I, I someday I'll be better at the chat, but I get going on this radio show and I there's a power of live when you're just when you're live and you know you've got the talks the 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 clock is ticking and you got to keep you know no dead air. It's different than doing podcasts. Um, which Paratruther just got a new logo for my final logo for that. And uh, we've got some shirts coming out soon. You guys go subscribe. If you anywhere podcasts are found, except Apple, Apple won't let me for whatever reason, put out Paratruther. I wonder why. Um, but uh, if you go subscribe to the Art of Burn radio transmission, you'll get both. And uh, it's just a, you know, a, uh, a parallel feed, but we have Paratruther and I've got a show coming out probably Sunday evening. So you're going to want to go subscribe. This is where we, we record. We're not live when we do that, but I got one on the, uh, the 1918, uh, Spanish flu. And, um, I've been wanting to talk about that, uh, since 2020, we're going to, we're just going to dive in. That's what paratruther is all about. So go subscribe to, uh, to my channels when you can, because that's where you get those shows. They don't always, they don't always come out on, on the, uh, the live feed if ever. All right, let's uh, let's jump around a little bit. Oh, this is another thing I was talking about. Uh, this is natural news, and when you get into the geopolitical movements out there, if you say, "Well, you know, this whole U Ukraine Russia conflict is because NATO expanded and pushed it into their face, and the Russians were goaded into and pushed." to invade and people say oh you must love russia no i'm just telling you why it happened i'm not that's not my country i live here um i don't have any ties to i'm not a russophile you know but i can i can rationalize what happened uh you know <laughs> all the world's a stage at some level but you know rationally i can i can uh, look at the the you know train of consequences here but uh this is another example. Either you're talking about somebody's going to be your savior. It's not going to be a nation state. I'm sorry, folks. I know Vladimir Putin's done some things here and there and said some things, especially to some of the oligarchs and billionaires there. I, I've liked, you know, his statement on that. But I, you know, and and pushing back against the the globalist and the central banksters, and uh, I, I like some of that. You know, George Soros, he has a wanted, dead or alive thing for that. I mean, okay, uh, I can I can see that. But naturalnews.com, this is another example of, right, the only good guys are us. Like, the only good guys is grassroots. It's the people. 
right? This is why this is a spiritual war. This is a war for information. It's a war for the mind, right? This is not like the wars in the past of our grandparents. It's not going to be that way. I mean, it's it's hearts and minds capturing the uh, the imagination of people and whether or not they have a soul, right? And this is uh, why you need to be careful of getting behind nation states. Russia plans to start testing its digital ruble CBDC this summer. Yeah. Russian lawmakers have approved the development of a digital ruble that could begin testing later this summer. While the bill has already passed through Russia's higher legislative body, it must obtain a signature from Vladimir Putin before it can go into effect. The Russian Central Bank reportedly plans to test the digital ruble involving 15 lenders. Businesses and consumers alike will be given the ability to open a digital wallet using the central bank's platform they can access through Russian banks. As a central bank digital currency or CBDC, the digital ruble would be a centralized token whose value is tied to the country's fiat currency. Well, if you look at something that happened after Biden put his sanctions on Russia, the the ruble fell for a minute. And I even thought, I, I was on a couple of financial shows, and I said, you need to watch this real closely. I don't think that it'll last this. They started to hemorrhage a little bit, and the price of the ruble and the purchasing power started to fall. But then they announced that they were going to have some sort of linkage between gold, that they would accept gold for uh, for oil, which is their greatest export is energy, right? And as soon as they made those announcements and said they wouldn't take dollars and started doing deals uh, with pl- countries like India, which is a, a massive consumer, big draw, their ruble bounced back. And it was uh, it was within like a month or two. And since then, they've just been rolling right along. Um, they told, you know, they, well, I think the finance minister of Russia, and I covered this on my show many times, he said the that the U.S. dollar to them was candy wrappers. They didn't want it. That's huge because that's the dollar is the petrodollar. And you, I mean, you you have to wonder. And I, I ha- happen to think that um, uh, James Forrester was right. The Secretary of Defense who uh, was thrown out of the window at Bethesda Naval Hospital. You know, he said that it. You know that if it was, they were all stupid. Then every once in a while they would err in our favor, but they never do, right? This is all a plan. Although the digital ruble's original plan use was for retail purposes, testing is expected to focus on cross-border payments as Russia looks for ways to skirt economic sanctions. Well, we've also accelerated the race for CBDC supremacy as well through these sanctions and what happened with uh, the war in Ukraine. So great job, everyone. Great job, to the, the Biden administration and the uh, globalist, soulless puppets who are behind it. I'm going to get into some things uh, next week. I, I heard, heard on a couple of podcasts, and I want to confirm some of this. But apparently, Biden and I, one of his own economic advisors has, in the past, published papers on why it would be better if the U.S. was not the world's reserve currency. Better, right? (laughs) This is somebody who apparently studies economics, which is mind-blowing. I mean, 
do you realize what happens to your current, like once you cross the Rubicon and become the world's reserve currency, and I'm not, a, I'm not an expert, but if you have quadrillions of units printed and manufactured and whatever you want to call them that are conjured out of thin air, and you've supplied all these central banks around the world to use dollars, again, 80% of all the cash ever made, not here, it's outside. So if you have all of that happening, and then all of a sudden people stop using it, it's called money velocity. You have a certain amount of units, you have a certain amount of demand. And when those things separate, you have hyperinflation. It's a catastrophic loss, right? It's, again, there, there's no saving it at that point. You're done. It's bankruptcy. Right? You don't get a go, get out of jail free card. You don't get to roll the dice again. It's it. And it's, it's something called Triffin's dilemma. Going back to the 1960s, Robert Triffin talked about what would happen when those dollars are repatriated. We're about to find out. The BRICS nations are meeting next month. They're going to apparently, for all the reports, they're going to link a currency to gold. It's kind of. Is it a big deal? Yes, it's a big, it's just all those nations and their buying power together and their economic output, and they're teaming up with all the little satellites like Saudi Arabia and Mexico and Argentina looking to join. We already have a gold standard. That's universal around the world. Uh, Doug Casey put out an article, and, and I, the only reason I didn't cover it is David Knight did this morning. It was just talking about, you know, the, it may it's probably doomed to fail because we already have you know these brick the bricks announcing this it just sets it sets us in motion the the the, the terrible ifs accumulate it's just not it's it's again it, is it the end of the dollar if they announce no but if those countries peg their currencies to gold the price of gold's going to go up it it's just mathematics there's going to be more demand. Uh, there's going to be more need for gold in circulation. The price of gold will go up. Those countries are massive holders of the yellow metal. They have a vested interest in it. They don't have the world's reserve currency. So, uh, you know, my line of logic here is that the U.S. tries to stay away from increasing the price of gold. That's why we're not buyers. We've been liquidating, We've been liquidating, liquidating since the 70s. The French president de Gaulle sent over warships to pick up the gold because we've been debasing our currency in the 60s with LBJ's guns and butter program. A great society on the Mekong. And so we went off the gold standard. We've just all we've been at war my entire life with value. And now all of those consequences, right? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. All that's coming back. And that's the scary part. The CBDC that I was just talking about with Russia, it's another example of un unintended consequence. We've accelerated all of this with our sanctions, with our foreign policy, with what happened with Russia. All right, let's see if we got time for at least one more article. All right, we'll close on this. Let's see. This is summit.news. So many of these hours go by quick, but I appreciate all of you uh, tuning in and um, make sure uh, that if I don't plug it, we've got Wise Wolf, Gold and Silver, and uh, 
our Wolfpack program, which don't say you don't have enough money to buy gold and silver. I got you. $50 a month loan wolf program. It's not a contract. Get into it. We put gold backs in there. Sometimes we've got fractional uh, silver coins. Sometimes every once in a while, I'll put a gold coin in there if I can afford it. I did. I even lost a little bit um, a couple months, but starting at 50 bucks, it's the lone wolf package. You can buy gold and silver, set it and forget it. Go check out wolfpack.gold. And if you just want to make a purchase, we've got Wise Wolf, and that's who sponsors the program. And I, I don't get to plug much else today because we're running up against uh, time. But we're going to be talking about this more and more in the the three ring circus of the Great Reset. It's it's an open question. What are they using this for? But this is a video. National Security Head claims UFOs having real impact on U.S. Air Force pilots. Ahead of a major hearing scheduled to take place in the House next week, National Security Coordinator John Kirby told reporters Tuesday that UFOs are having a real impact on the ability of the U.S. Air Force pilots to operate. We wouldn't have stood up to an organization at the Pentagon to analyze and try to collect and coordinate the way these sightings are reported if we didn't take it seriously, Kirby said during questioning on unidentified aerial phenomenon. Does that mean for... uh, some of these phenomenon we know have already had an impact on our training ranges where when pilots are out trying to do training in the air and they see things, they're not sure what they are. Now we're not saying that we know what they are and what they are not. It's funny. They've been dealing, this is, you have to ask the question and I'm going to close with this and this is going to be, we're going to study this and, and, Paratruth is going to dive into this. I'm going to talk about more of this. It's going, to, it's going to be on the headlines. The question is, why the pivot? Are there more sightings today and more dealings with UFOs and unidentified flying objects? Have they, have this, has this increased or are they just now talking about it? Well, if you know anything about UFOs or the history of UFOs and how far it goes back. And there's really good journalism on it. Some of it's nonsense, but there's some really good journalism that goes back decades. Uh, This is nothing new. The question is not necessarily about the phenomenon itself. The question is, what's the agenda? You know, again, I'm closing, but you look at Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer is push, pushing a bill uh, to put a blanket protection over the whistleblowers, and that's great. You know, people are coming forward from different government agencies to talk about uh, encounters with UFOs and uh, alien technology, whatever they're coming out and talking about, right? what they've seen, studies, all that. He's pushing it. But these are people not really interested in the truth. Has it, has that been part of what you've experienced in the last 30, 40 years? I, it's not me. We get less and less interested in the truth every day. We're interested in propaganda. We're interested in narrative in this country. The leaders are. They're interested in narrative, not interested in truth. Those are two different things. So what's the narrative here? Remember, Chuck Schumer is the guy that said that uh, the, uh, the, the intelligence communities have six different ways from Sunday to get you if you cross them. He's talking about the president of the United States. He was talking about Donald Trump. So who's in charge of this country? Chuck, right? Is it you? 
or is it the intelligence? Because you cross the intelligence community, even if you're a duly elected representative of the American people, they they'll get you. Well, I think I think we know that. You know, you can go check out a copy of Don Jeffrey's Hidden History. Find out why the deep state uh, murdered JFK in Dealey Plaza, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. Many reasons, but they had they do have six different ways. You know, and six feet apart, stay, stay six, six, six feet apart, six different ways. Right. I, I get it, Chuck. But these are the questions. These are the big questions. You're going to, this, again, this is one of the reasons I started this show. This is stuff you're going to, this is going to be ubiquitous everywhere, all the time. Every headline going to be talking about UFOs. I promise. Uh, and the, the question that we're going to have to drill down and find out is what is this agenda? What's it for? Kubono. Who benefits in a Project Blue Beam scenario? All right, ladies and gents. Arterburn.news, wisewolf.gold, wolfpack.gold. Uh, we will be back next week. Look for a paratruther to uh, drop uh, over the weekend or into Monday. Wise Wolf Gold and Crypto Show uh, on Monday. See you guys soon. Have a great weekend. Take care of each other. End of transmission.